Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. With legislative sessions getting underway in states across the country, we recently convened four New Deal leaders who serve in leadership positions in their respective legislatures. Connecticut Senate President Bob Duff, Iowa Senate Democratic Leader Zach Walls, Pennsylvania House Democratic Whip Jordan Harris, and Florida House Democratic Whip Christine Hunchofsky. We asked the group to talk a little bit about the political landscape where they are and what we can expect in the coming months. We thought this was particularly important, really frankly, given the importance that states are going to play this year in tackling some of our country's biggest problems. As you know, this is not a new phenomenon. Obviously, in the course of my 20 years in politics, I've seen more and more go to the state level. But really, just thinking about, you know, over the last you know year or so and the landscape that's out there, starting with the Supreme Court last year and their decision on Roe, devolving, you know, women's reproductive health to the states. And then so many issues from climate to workforce training to to housing and education that flows through state legislatures are just going to have such an important role to, role to play. I think it's also important for, to, to note a couple other things. One is we all witnessed last week the chaos that is in the House of Representatives this year. And with what is, you know, we can all hope that cooler heads will prevail and things will get done. But I think we have to be realistic about the fact that there could be a, uh, two years here where Washington is able to get very little done. And therefore, again, even more importance will be on the work at the state legislative level. I also think it's important to note that you know, we just came through an election in November, not very long ago, where voters clearly rejected the extremism in favor of mainstream politics. And if there was a message sent in the election last November, to me, it was that they wanted people, adults in the room to get things done and to solve people's problems. And so I think, again, that all just points to the really outsized, important nature that state legislatures are going to play this year. Fortunately, actually, despite what's happens in Congress over the next two years, the Congress did pass a number of really big, important historic legislation in the last Congress under the leadership of President Biden through the, the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal, the Inflation Reduction Act, and others. So there is money flowing to states and localities. And so excited to see what states are going to be able to do with that money in some states where we'll talk about that with our panelists here. But, you know, I think there will be a, an opportunity here to make progress on things like childcare and housing. We've already seen some of this with the American rescue plan funds, broadband, and other places. So I want to thank all four of you for being with us today. Looking forward to a really exciting conversation. But so just to get the juices flowing, I thought I would ask you just to start with literally one word that describes the legislative environment in your in your state. Bob, can I, I'll start with you. Sure. Thank you. The one word I would say is energetic. Excellent. Interesting. This is going to be a, <laughs> this could be a very, a very diverse <laughs> set of words. Jordan, what do you think? What's your one word? 
crazy. And I'm sure you've seen it on your TVs nationally. It is really crazy time in Harrisburg and Pennsylvania. And we'll get into it. Okay, that sounds great. Excellent. Thanks, Zach. I'd say rebuilding. Interesting. Yes, Iowa and Florida. Christine. Concerning would be my word. Fair, fair enough. Those are great. Thank you for that. Well, let's go ahead and start. I rattled off a few issues that I know are on the minds of, of Democrats and across the country. But Bob, as we look to you, where you have that energetic answer, you've got a pretty blue state that you're getting to lead the Senate in. What are you looking to try to do this legislative session? Thanks, Abby. You know, it's really great just to start off. It's really great being with New Deal and New Deal leaders. Uh, we get so much energy and so many ideas from New Deal. A lot of us came together to the conference uh, in November and, you know, left energetic, which is why one of the reasons why I'm so energetic about this session coming up and so many so many others are as well. We're going to be talking about a lot of things in Connecticut. We're very fortunate to be in a, after many years of rebuilding, to have a uh, really strong fiscal record and fiscal conditions here in the state of Connecticut. We're paying down our pension debt. We had $600 million of tax cuts last year. We still find ourselves in very good fiscal condition to continue to help people in the state of Connecticut. There's a lot of work to be done, though, because we've seen issues that not only affect the state of Connecticut, but they impact people all across this country. Some of that is in housing and and really getting our arms around housing, whether it's for senior citizens, whether it's for people who are just graduating college, whether it's for people who are just who are coming into the state and and working to uh, be a part of the the middle class. We have a housing shortage here in the state of Connecticut. A lot of that is because of local zoning rules and regulations that are far outdated. They have roots of racism in them, and we need to put dollars to building more affordable housing and to ensuring that housing builds our economy. Housing is an economic driver, and that is extremely important for us here in the state of Connecticut. Secondly, what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're continuing our workforce development. We were very fortunate years ago under former Senator Will Haskell, who's also another New Deal leader, to put forward a debt-free community college. But we need to do more than that. We need to expand that and even into our our state universities. We know that when students go to our state colleges, they stay here after they graduate, but we need to make it more affordable for them. You think about parents who and others, people who want to retrain themselves for the technological world that we live in. We need to make it so that they're able to do that and not put another mortgage on their house or go into so much debt. But they, the, it's a barrier for them, and especially even first-generation people who live in this country or in the state of Connecticut. So we've got to make sure that we're doing that. We've got to better align our uh, state's training and employer needs as well. We want to continue to make sure that we're looking at our taxes, and if if there are room, there's room for more tax cuts. Uh, let's do that. Governor Watt has talked about that as well, and because of the work that our Congress did and President Biden with our bipartisan infrastructure bill, we want to make sure that we're taking advantage of every single dollar we can for transportation improvements, including work on, on climate resiliency as well. So there's a lot of money to come in to Connecticut. We want to make sure that we're ready for that. We have some of the worst traffic in the world. I don't want to say that it's worse than where you are in California. Debbie, but I think we're, we're certainly uh, close on that, on, on the bad traffic. But again, that costs people thousands of dollars a year, whether they're sitting in traffic or for car maintenance or truck maintenance. We need to make sure we're looking at that. In addition to a lot of other issues, energy, environment, uh, many others. But I'll stop there. A lot of things to do. Very energetic about it. I know we can do it. 
Thanks so much, Bob. And I know a lot of those issues that you mentioned, housing, workforce development, so cross-cutting really across the country, frankly, and transportation. Jordan, let me turn to you. You started with crazy. So tell us a little bit about what the Democratic Caucus priorities are in the Pennsylvania House and also how that's going to play out given the the backdrop that maybe you can remind people about what you're going through in terms of your own leadership situation there. So first, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to be with uh, New Deal leaders from across the country who are doing great work and lifting up people and putting people first in our government. Democrats have a majority for the first time in Pennsylvania's House in more than 12 years. In the minority over the last few years since I've been in, Democrats have held uh, held it together and were able to, with the backstop of Democratic governors, been able to stop a lot of bad things that the Republican caucus in our House uh, has been uh, advancing. I remember one time we were down to 78 members. Uh, The majority in our House is 102. We were down to 78 members and we're still being able to unify and get things done. Last session with 90 members, we were able to unify and still get things done. So we are, while it's crazy, we are also encouraged by what we can do, what we'll be able to do soon with 102 Democrats in the House of Representatives for the first time in 12 years. It revolves around things like continuing to protect a woman's right to choose and uh, health care access here in the Commonwealth, seeing that the Supreme Court will no longer at this time protect a woman. We want to make sure in Pennsylvania that we're not only just protecting her right to choose an abortion, but also increasing access to health care uh, for women and families across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. A lot of people talk about Pennsylvania. They know about Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but there's a lot of rural area mm-hmm. in between. And we have to increase access to health care uh, in those parts. We have to continue to protect our democracy. And what that means is increasing access to vote for voters and stopping bad things like voter ID and other things that are trying to diminish a person's right to vote and have their voice be heard in our commonwealth. Pennsylvania has been the first in many things and has led the way with regards to criminal justice reform. And we hope to continue to do that here in our next session. My good friend from Connecticut is here. And I know that come the first of this year, Connecticut became one of the new states to be a part of the clean slate movement. In Pennsylvania, we were actually the first state to pass clean slate, which is record sealing, automatic record sealing for those in our communities who have found themselves on the wrong side of the of the law, but have changed their lives, reformed their lives, and have moved on. We're giving them a second chance in PA, and we're so glad to see Connecticut states across the country doing the same thing. We want to expand that here in Pennsylvania, but we also got to do things like increase the minimum wage. When you look at it, we are at the federal minimum wage level here in Pennsylvania. It's ridiculous. All of the states around us have increased their minimum wage, yet we're still paying people $7.25 an hour. And in addition to that, we want to increase affordable housing in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I can tell you, I live in, in Philadelphia. I represent one of the highest gentrifying zip codes in the nation, 19146, one of the highest gentrifying zip codes in the nation. Well, here with our new Democratic majority, we want to expand some of the things that we've done to help people stay in their homes. And we want to also look at how do we increase housing and housing eligibility and the affordability of housing in places like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, Allentown, and places in between. We want to return government to focusing on people and not the politics policies that really, really talk to people and affect people and using the dollars that were coming from the federal government to do just that, investing Pennsylvanians. 
Pardon me. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Jordan. I really appreciate that overlook. And it is, it's been really interesting to watch kind of the uniqueness in which, uh, you know, or, you know, whether or not this is going to be a center out situation with your leadership in Pennsylvania. So appreciate you kind of bringing us up to speed. Let me turn now to Zach Balls, again, Senate Democratic leader in Iowa. You, you used a word rebuilding. You are in a very tough minority in terms of numbers. What does that look like for you in terms of what, how you approach the legislative session this year, what the, about your priorities, but also just how you're going to kind of operate in that kind of minority? Well, Debbie, first of all, let me echo Bob and Jordan. Wonderful to be with the New Deal leaders. And I had a wonderful time at the conference in December. Look forward to getting together again soon. I said rebuilding both literally. There's a lot of construction happening outside my office. I can see the scaffolding here. And and there's a lot of work going on to, to make sure that our, our beautiful capital stays in, in great shape. But obviously, it's a great metaphor for where Iowa Democrats are as a party and trying to figure about where we go from here. That's also why I'm on mute when I'm not speaking. There's a lot of loud noises happening, so I'll I'll try to keep that to a minimum. A few things. You asked how we're going to operate as a caucus, and and frankly, I think that actually dictates our legislative agenda in many ways. I'm I'm really proud of our team. Shortly after our leadership election in November, we got right to work with a fantastic leadership planning retreat in December. And uh, just last night, actually, we rolled out our new plan, uh, our path back to the majority strategy to our caucus last night, had a unanimous approval, really excited to be firing on all cylinders as we move forward. In terms of the legislative agenda, when we're we're at 16 out of 50, so we just went into the super minority, uh, lost two tough incumbent races last year, beat the Republican Senate president, which was fantastic and a huge win for us, the one bright spot of election night here in Iowa. But there's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of work ahead. We know that Republicans here are going to overreach. It's already starting to happen. They're pushing a, a pretty radical school vouchers program that uh, doesn't have any income limits, doesn't have any essential requirements or strings attached uh, to the schools that would be receiving those vouchers and would really threaten Iowa's public education system, which is uh, historically been one of the best in the country. Actually, public education is such an important part of our state's identity that when we did all those quarters with the states, we put our schoolhouse in the back of our quarter. And Republicans want to want to throw that away. We also know that Republicans are going to be advancing very radical anti-abortion legislation that could be some of the most uh, severe in the country. Uh, Republicans had previously passed a six-week ban on abortion, so-called fetal heartbeat bill. And that's something that we expect to see uh, come again now that we are in a post-Roe environment. Finally, we also know that uh, Republicans are likely to advance some a bill that's going to essentially reorganize a state government. Now, I will say that as a New Deal leader and a New Deal Democrat, I'm very excited about the opportunity to dig in uh, and find some efficiencies to make government smarter and more responsive. Obviously, the devil will be in the details, and it's very concerning that the governor's team did not include any legislators, Democrat or Republican, uh, in beginning that process. It's something that has been obviously a long time coming. We're, we're probably, frankly, a little overdue for taking a look at some of these things, but it is concerning that the governor did not involve legislators in beginning this process and that we found out about it only at her condition of the state speech on Tuesday night. Not a great start. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Thanks for the heads up on that reorg as well. Great. Let me just finish up here with in this part, opening part with Christine Hunchofsky, who again is the Florida Democratic House whip. Christine, your word was concerning. What's concerning you and what are Democrats going to do about it? Thank you, Debbie. First of all, I'm so thrilled to be here. I always find being around the New Deal leaders just invigorating and inspiring and kind of gives me the fuel to continue the happy work we do on behalf of our residents. And yeah, concerning because the Democrats are now in a super minority in the Florida House and the Florida Senate. 
we have in the House 35 out of 120 members. So in many ways, what Zach was talking about, we're doing similar things here. There's a rebuilding within the caucus, uh, a lot of work on training, how we're professionalizing, how we operate, and not always... It's not about whether we agree or disagree with the policy. We're also putting forth policy that we believe in because it's not just saying not that policy, but if you were to have us leading, this is what our policy would look like. Being very proactive, we're looking at a lot of the same things that Zach mentioned, universal vouchers, additional restrictions on choice for women. And additionally, permitless carry has been mentioned several times by our governor, what I like to call untrained carry, because that's basically what it is. No more license to carry a weapon with you and no training involved. So what are we doing? Uh, We're focusing on some of the things where we can find some bipartisanship, mental health, school safety. There are places where we can work together. It's getting harder and harder. There's something about when there isn't more balance in a state house that you just don't have that same impetus to work together constructively. We had, for example, our second special session on property insurance within the last year. And for those who haven't heard, we have a massive property insurance crisis here in the state of Florida. I have one community, their property insurance and their own fixed income went from 300000 to 800000 to $1.2 million. I have residents who their property insurance is going from 5000 to 10000 And when we're already in a housing affordability crisis, we can't be compounding that with a property insurance insurance crisis. And unfortunately, the legislation that passed in December, while it had some good things in it, like getting rid of the assignment of benefits, there was really nothing in there to provide relief to our constituents. And in the end, you know, where we sometimes like to govern by headline, groups like to govern by hyperbole, it's the people who are hurting in the process, the people we we represent, the, the people who just want to have a fair shot at making a living and staying in the home that they've invested in, being able to live in the communities they've been in for the last 20 years. And uh, there needs to be more attention to that. And our what we've been doing is focusing a lot on those stories and really making sure that with all the Twitter wars and everything else that goes on and these sometimes manufactured crises that we are never losing sight of the people we represent and the people we work for and making sure that their struggles and their pain and their experiences are being reflected up in Tallahassee. Thanks so much, Christine. And I I just appreciate the thought about, you know, trying to see where there's that common ground, right? And to find how we can move balls forward and solve problems, even in these these really tough environments. And, to, and I don't think you mentioned, obviously, with Florida, redistricting had such a huge role in what, you know, your outcome on that uh, that majority was, which is another topic that New Deal cares a lot about. And we need to continue to talk about in the, in the context of democracy, for sure. I'd like to open it up to the, to the whole panel for a minute. We talked a little bit, some of you mentioned some of the federal dollars that were coming, Bob, in particular, about the, the transportation work you're hoping to see in Connecticut with the bipartisan infrastructure deal money. Are there other things that any of you are focused on that you would want to highlight that you're going to be able to do with some of the federal dollars that are coming to states through those various avenues? Obviously, with the we've been very successful utilizing ARPA dollars and uh, over the last few years in, in trying to ensure that, especially 
when we're focused from the pandemic with mental health of our school children and using some dollars from that and propping up education institutions as well, whether it's a free admission to museums or other ways in which we have used ARPA dollars. So that has been really a huge win, I think, not only for Connecticut, but for most states. If, if people have used it responsibly, we have worked on a bipartisan basis and also with the governor's office to make, ensure that ARPA dollars have been have been utilized in ways that follow the rules, but also help the people of the state of Connecticut. For example, some of the tax cuts we were able to accomplish were used because because we had the ability to use some ARPA dollars, whether that was free bus service or even some of our gas tax relief that we were giving people. That's just a small part of it. But the museum, the free museums and, and part of that around education was extremely important. But so we've been, you know, having that Democratic majority working with President Biden over the last two years was very, very important to getting us back on our feet and also getting shots in arms uh, for the vaccine and getting the economy back moving again. All of those things, those federal dollars, whether it's for ARPA dollars, whether it's infrastructure, has been really very useful to states and those of us who are really working to spend those dollars responsibly. Thank you. Real quick, a couple of things that we've done in Pennsylvania that really have helped money in schools. I mean, we have school building. I have a school building in Philadelphia that dates back to reconstruction. And so, you know, taking those resources and putting them into school buildings, to rehab school buildings, to work on HVAC systems and things of that nature have been extremely important to people in Pennsylvania. Another thing that we've done, uh, we funded a program with our, that we started with our dollars, probably going to look to continue with some of our general fund money. It's called Whole Home Repair Program, which we're actually using those dollars to give to folks who are homeowners up to $50,000, depending on their income for them to rehab their own homes. And we've used that as an opportunity to keep people in their homes. What we found in gentrifying neighborhoods like mine is you have a $10,000 rehab on your home that just looks like an insurmountable obstacle. So when the person comes to you and says, hey, I'll give you $100,000 for your house, you're looking at this hole in your roof and you can't find the resource to fix the hole, so you sell the house. So you sell the house, which could be worth more, but you sell the house for that $100,000, you know, a lot of our, our our seniors are going, taking that money, they're going into a senior center. And some people will say, well, that's great. Well, the truth is that house cost more than $100,000. It was worth more. So that senior didn't get that money. Two, the senior didn't have to sell the money if they had the money to rehab their home, which a lot of us, we just don't have. A $10,000 problem to some is just a check. To some others, a $10,000 problem, it's a lifetime, right? And then the third thing is, We're actually taking away generational wealth when a person has to sell their home instead of fixing it and being able to transfer it onto their children and their grandchildren. So we were able to use those dollars to really get the money into the hands of folks to say, hey, fix up your home so you can keep your property. So we looked at schools and we're doing good work with that. We looked at homes and we're looking at the transportation money. We're looking at infrastructure. Pennsylvania has old roads and bridges that need to be fixed. And this infusion of resources is going to help us do just that. Thanks, Jordan. Zach, I know you were trying to, to jump in. Yeah, well, coming from a state with a Republican governor, it's been an interesting experience, as some of the viewers on the webinar may or may not know. Uh, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds here in Iowa actually campaigned pretty vociferously against the American Rescue Plan 
But interestingly, she hasn't hesitated to take credit when she gets to dole out money that is made possible by ARPA. I don't know, Christine, if that sounds at all familiar, town with Governor DeSantis in Florida. Very familiar to me. I know Governor DeSantis and Governor Reynolds are spending a lot of time together, so that doesn't surprise me that they might be trading notes. But I certainly, I think that that's been an interesting storyline, Debbie, that may have been maybe a little undercovered over the last year or so as, as those ones have really gotten into the economy. I'll say it's been transformative here in Iowa. One of the, the major pieces of bipartisan legislation, I actually had the pleasure of serving on the subcommittee and advancing this work in the democratic capacity, was the creation of a new infrastructure pool specifically for rural broadband. Uh, that's a huge need in our state. We have thousands, tens of thousands of households across Iowa that have a real need for high-speed internet, not just for, for entertainment and streaming Netflix, but also to run some of the big machines that help be are used when we are growing food and fuel out here in Iowa. And so that's been a really critical need for us, and it's been really transformative. And the state made a small contribution from our state budget, has but has paid for the vast majority of those rounds of funding with federal dollars. And we're really excited to see what is coming down the pike with the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Iowa has some of the, the most structurally deficient roads and bridges in the country by per capita. Again, going back to our ag economy, there are a lot of farm to market roads out there that just because of the nature of farming and, and the kind of larger and larger farming implements that are being used, trucks with more and more bushels on them. We just got some, some real wear and tear that happens on our roads and bridges every year. And we know that these dollars are going to be critical when it comes to actually repairing them and, and getting Iowa back on track in that regard. So that's just a small preview of some of the things that we're seeing. And it's been interesting to watch these uh, Republican governors, many of whom criticized ARPA, uh, now have this little footnote at the bottom of the press release that you know, this project is paid for with the funds from the American Rescue Plan. Yeah, absolutely. We'll hear from Christine. And Jack, I'd, I, maybe one thing I'd flag that I know you've talked a lot about, too, is with the Inflation Reduction Act dollars, the, this idea of transitioning to a, a clean energy economy, something that you have said needs federal investment in the past and hope can make a real difference there as well. Christine, yeah. go ahead, one, of, one of the things, and I, I don't want to reiterate too much of what's been said. So something that I know was incredibly beneficial to families here in Florida from ARPA was the child care stabilization that we received. Child care is so expensive right now that people can't afford to go to work. We talk about economic prosperity and really looking at our economies, making sure people can get to work. Um, we have a workforce issue, but we have a massive child care issue here in the state of Florida, especially in South Florida. And the ARPA funding did so much to help make child care affordable so that people could go to work and their children would be in a safe place where they had quality child care. Infrastructure is becoming more and more the word of the hour in Florida. We have a lot of resiliency plans. Actually, our speaker in the House is very committed to infrastructure. He started, he formed a new committee called Infrastructure Strategies. I sit on that committee and we're going to be addressing everything from septic to sewer, broadband, everything dealing with climate change and resiliency and what we can do to make Florida's infrastructure stronger as we see so much migration to Florida and really going forward. So, and those federal dollars will come in quite handy and I will make sure that we are giving credit where credit is due on the foresight to be investing in America and in our states and in our communities and making sure that people have the infrastructure they need to get to where they need to go and also to do the work they need to do. 
great. Thanks, Christine. Yeah, can I can I highlight that too, Debbie? Is that Please we go. should you know the fact that not only the states receive money, but our our municipalities or counties—we don't have counties in Connecticut—receive funding as well to really do a lot of projects that have been on the drawing board for a number of years and sometimes decades. And Christine brought up the fact of the childcare stabilization, which you know sometimes you forget some of the all that funding that came out of ARPA that literally help save the economy and that also help put people back to work again. One of the reasons why I think we have such a strong labor market right now is because of the fact that of what the president and Congress did by sending this money back to the states and municipalities, because without it, people would not have that ability to get back to work again in a way that they did from the pandemic. So I think people, the American people, should recognize all that. And I wish there was some way we could have a slip every time there was money from ARPA or the bipartisan infrastructure law that that folks could recognize that this was an investment because good people who make good policy saw the value in, in these funds. Absolutely. I want to end this kind of session of our webinar with another, I think, kind of lightning round question, which is I, I started at the top talking a little bit about Washington and uh, the change in leadership in the House. I think my question for you is, you know, what, if you have thoughts on the, the change of leadership and what that mean, might mean for states, or, or maybe the way I'd ask it is, if you had one message for Washington from a state, from your state, over the next few years, uh, what would what would that message be? And maybe I'll go backwards if that works this time. Christine, put you on the spot first. Oh, a message for them. Um, <laughs> remember the people who elected you. We need problem solvers. I'm just hoping that we can keep a barrier up between what's happening up there and what happens in our states because the people who elected us need us to work for them. They need us to deal with some of these problems that we've been dealing with for decades. And while I understand people, when they're far from home, they get caught up in a bubble. The people can't afford this bickering. And all they are doing is eroding people's trust in our government. And that is really unconscionable. Thanks, Christine. Zach? I was um, having supper on a Monday or Tuesday this week at a bar uh, here in, in town and struck up a conversation with a gentleman who was also sitting there and kind of politics came up. And one of the things that he had to say, I'll, I'll give my kind of quote to him. He said that, you know, change is going to happen from from Iowa up, not Washington down. And I thought that was really appropriate. You know, there's obviously a huge divide in this country, but I, I would just my message would be that kind of like Greg, my, my new friend said, help us work from the bottom up and maybe change the culture in Washington so it doesn't poison us from the top down. Thanks, Zach. Jordan, thoughts from Pennsylvania? Kind of along the line of what Christine said. I think the truth is that people don't care about the policy. care about the policy. And I think that's something that our federal government can't forget. Something that our state governments can't forget either is that when we have these petty political fallouts and, and, and it's DNN and Fox News and MSNBC, most people honestly do not care. They just don't. What they care about are what they care about is can I afford to buy eggs in my supermarket? Can I afford to put gas in my car? Am I sending my child to a quality school? Is my child going to get home from that quality school because our streets are safe? That's the things that the everyday person that I see at the 22nd Street Cafe on Thursday nights where I go get, they got really good fried shrimp. If you're in Philly, go check them out. Tell them I sent. <laughs> at 22nd Street Cafe, that's what they're talking about. 
not the petty politics that we have to endure. So remain focused on the people and the policy. We can leave the politics to the side. Thanks, George. Beautifully said. Bob. Well, thank you. And I'd like to associate myself with the comments of three other my colleagues here. I would just say that for Connecticut, I'm just so proud to live in the state of Connecticut. And you know, we enjoy some of the best quality of life out of any state in the nation. We have the fourth lowest incidence of violent crime. So we're one of the safest states in the nation. We have some of the best schools in the country. We have the workforce that is the most productive and some of the most fortunate 500 companies per capita in Connecticut. And that's no accident. That's because when we pass legislation, we pass legislation based on the values that we have. We have a strong family paid family medically. We have a high minimum wage. We have strong gun laws. We value education funding and we're investing in higher education as well. We're going to work to tackle housing and, and homelessness and a lot so many other issues that are current not only in Connecticut but across this country. And so I would my message to the folks in Congress would be to do big things. The American people want us to do big things. They want to solve problems. And while the legislatures and legislatures across country are sometimes designed to be incremental, people want us to solve the problems that they face and do it in a big way. They will go along and go along for the ride with that if we're working together to get that done. So I would say do big things and don't be extreme. What we saw last week in the U.S. House of Representatives with 15 votes for the Speaker of the House and 20 people holding that process hostage was really a small group of people uh, who are who are hell-bent on not passing a budget, who are hell-bent on not raising the debt ceiling when that's going to be, which could be disastrous, not only for this country, but for every state in the nation. So get to work, work together, do big things. The country will be better off for that, and we will grow and prosper as we have for generations in the past. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks to all of you. I, listening to you, kind of particularly in that last answer to all of you, I, I'm reminded that someone said to me at the conference, somebody mentioned the conference in November, that they love coming to the New Deal because it's a cynicism-free zone. And I was like, I love that. <laughs> and I want that to be our bumper sticker. Listening to all of you just about how we're going to solve people's problems is so inspiring. And um, we will be following what you're all doing in your states. We will be reporting back to our leaders and, and other members around the country throughout the year. And just thank you for all four of you for your leadership in in your respective legislative bodies, you have a lot of weight on your shoulders to solve those big problems you've been talking about, but I have every confidence that you will, you will do it. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.